0: Last fall, we did a whole series that was dedicated to decarbonizing our transportation sector, and you might remember the story about Tim Truer's road trip, where he drove his electric vehicle across the country and up into Alaska, learning a lot about the nation's charging infrastructure in the process. Well, since we released that episode, there's been some pretty major developments in the world of transport decarbonization, particularly when it comes to electric vehicles. The state of California,
1: you've heard of before, <laughs> well have passed a new rule banning the sale of all gas-powered vehicles by 2035. So there's still some time. There's some time. <laughs>
0: Transportation is the biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions in California. But on August 25th of this year, CARB, which stands for the California Air Resources Board, which is this organization that deals with regulating air quality in California, well, CARB made a pretty big move to change that. They approved a rule mandating that by 2035, all new cars that are sold in California will be zero emission vehicles or ZEVs, like electric cars. This means that in a decade, cars in California might look very different than they do today. The state will need to build out charging infrastructure to meet the demand from lots of new electric vehicles. And as cars with combustion engines age out of the secondhand market, the regulation sets California up for a zero emission and highly electrified future. The rule will also deliver some huge climate and health wins along the way. The agency estimates that by 2035, the regulation will result in 9.5 million fewer gas-powered cars being sold. And in addition to helping the planet by slashing carbon emissions, having fewer fossil fuel cars on the road comes with some pretty major pollution benefits. According to CARB, the regulation will reduce deaths associated with pollution exposure and save Californians the equivalent of $13 billion in avoided health costs due to pollution from 2026 to 2040. California is not alone in this rule. New York is also banning gas-powered car sales by 2035. And soon, as many as 17 other states, like Washington and Massachusetts, which currently have vehicle emission standards tied to California's, may follow suit. This wave of regulation could change the face of American transit forever. This week, we're talking with one of California's most influential environmental regulators about how the ban on gas car sales in California came to be, and how it will help the state to make the big switch towards a net-zero future for transportation. This is The Big Switch, a show about how to rebuild the energy systems that are all around us. I'm Dr. Melissa Lott, and I'm the Director of Research at Columbia University's CEPA Center on Global Energy Policy. This landmark regulation in California didn't just happen overnight.
1: To me, probably the biggest breakthrough in all of this is that um, when we began more recently to um, look at the possibility of phasing out internal combustion engines, there was no meaningful opposition to that coming from the audio industry. I mean, having litigated with them, against them, you know, for years, um, we're at a point now where there's a pretty general consensus that um, we need to be moving in the direction of uh, electric transportation. Electric transportation is the future, and um, government and industry have to work together to find ways to make it succeed.
0: This is Mary Nichols. She served twice as the chair of CARB under three different governors. And over her 50-year career, Nichols has championed clean air and advocated for the adoption of electric vehicles. She's also currently a Distinguished Visiting Fellow at the Center that I work at here at Columbia University. I spoke to her about the long history that led up to CARB's rule banning gas car sales. I've heard you referred to, and I I personally would agree with this one, I've heard you called the most influential environmental regulator in history, like full stop. And I'm wondering, what does it mean to be an environmental regulator? To you, like, what does that even mean?
1: Maybe what I should say to sort of back this up is I am a lawyer and um, I sometimes am flattered when people say, oh, gosh, I never would have thought you were a lawyer, because when they're saying that, they usually mean, hey, you're pretty nice, <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> uh, you know, you're not a jerk. <laughs> but um, in fact, uh, going to law school really has shaped my view of mm. the world uh, because Uh, I'm a believer that we can um, make things better using laws if those laws are enforced. And what I've done as an environmental regulator is primarily to take statutes that were passed by Congress or passed by the legislature, which, uh, generally speaking, have big, grand language in them, like, you will achieve healthy air quality by a certain date. And figure out how to actually translate that into actions that can be taken uh, and can be measured and can be monitored and can be um, enforced if if people aren't doing what they're required to do. So it's a fine art. And generally speaking, most people think regulation equals unpleasantness, right? We don't usually ask to be regulated Um, in our own lives. We tend to think of it as burdensome and Restrictive and prescriptive. And you hear a lot, um, especially in, in the political arena, about how burdensome regulations are keeping people from building things or doing things. And the truth is that if regulations are not done thoughtfully and carefully and making use of all the tools that they can incorporate, they can have that effect without, without a doubt. But the other side of the coin is that I think most thoughtful business people will tell you that in any competitive market situation, um, they need to have a backstop uh, of, a, of, of regulation in order to keep a level playing field to make sure that competition is fair. And if you want to make change happen, whether it's anything from um, having seat belts in cars, uh, to assuring that, uh, you know, the energy supply has, uh, an adequate, uh, mix of renewable electricity in it. Um, you have to have some type of governmental regulation to make that happen. Now, there's a lot of different agencies, a lot of different statutes, a lot of different ways of doing regulation. And um, sometimes it feels uh, to me also like in our society, there are just too many regulations. You know, talk to anybody who's tried to do a building project, just For example, or start a new business. And you can, you can just, you know, go through a laundry list of things that you're required to do. But when we want to make big, important things happen, like cleaning up the air or making the water supply safe, we need to have some form of legally enforceable rules uh, to keep the society going. And that's what I've worked on for it now turns out about fifty
0: years I know that you 've long been like advocating for a target of having you know zero emission vehicle sales as quickly as possible, going you know to the vast majority of sales that are out there but i 'm wondering to what you were saying a minute ago, can you actually help me understand? the regulatory journey that most of us don't know about that was behind this thing that then became a headline that we're all reading about, where it's like, okay, 2035, no new gas-powered cars. Um, Can you talk me through the journey behind all of that a bit? Well,
1: when I first started uh, working in this field uh, back in the seventies, uh, we had a mantra of performance-based regulations and never putting your thumb on the scale of technology, but setting uh, standards based on what the outcome you wanted to achieve was—clean air, for example—and then working backwards from that um, direct industry to produce a product that would meet those standards, but not tell them exactly how to do that. Um, and in the case of the automobile, of course, it's complicated by the fact that You don't just pick up a piece of technology and drive it. You have to have a fuel in it. So you're really dealing with a, with two complex large systems, not just one when you talk about, uh, when you talk about vehicle transportation. However, um, over the years, Uh, this thinking really evolved in the direction of saying well wait a minute now we know that the internal combustion engine can get cleaner and cleaner and cleaner and we can put um, uh, we can put add-on technology at the tailpipe of the car like the catalytic converter which was a huge breakthrough uh, and then the three-way catalytic converter and we can clean up the fuel and make the gasoline uh, formula uh, cleaner so that you get less emissions out of the tailpipe. But at the end of the day, it's still combustion. And um, the move towards zero tailpipe emission vehicles really took a turn when we began to realize that it wasn't just the uh, nitrogen oxides and the volatile organic compounds and the particulates that were coming out of the vehicles that we needed to be worried about, that it was really the combustion of any kind of fuel that was going to be... Um, unacceptable if it, if we were going to be reaching the kind of um, goals of you know that the science was telling us we needed to reach to uh, you know to keep the planet from warming uh, by more than 1.5 degrees centigrade and if uh, the US and California even though California itself is only one state where you know less than one percent of the global economy but we're a big contributor even at one percent we had to figure out what to do next. And so the battery vehicles and the fuel cell vehicles and advanced hybrids really began to rise to the fore. And we started thinking about actually mandating sales uh, of ZEVs. That's That goes back really into the nineties that we first started, um, asking the manufacturers to, um, uh, to produce and sell increasing volumes of zero emission vehicles. But towards the last of, um, you know, the, well, really towards the, in the early 2000s, we began to start thinking about maybe just having to end the life of the internal combustion engine. And that led to what the governor did in, uh, putting out an executive order telling CARB, the Air Resources Board, to develop regulations that would actually, um, ban any sales of new, uh, internal combustion engines in, California by 2035.
0: Were there any points in this? Because, I mean, that's a 30-year journey if you think back to the 90s. It's longer than that if you think back to the Clean Air Act. Over that 30-year period, did you see any points that were just major breakthroughs? I mean, the governor actually issuing that executive order, but a lot of stuff happened before that. I don't know if there were any major points in the process that were, I don't know, adding some fuel to the fire of getting this moving forward, no pun intended.
1: (laughs) Well, uh, there there were many battles along Mm -hmm. the way, but the the requirement to uh, meet a tailpipe standard that could only be met by using a, a, a catalytic converter was a big one. And one of the reasons why it was so important was that <clears throat> the catalyst wouldn't function uh, with leaded gasoline. So a side effect of having uh, require the use of the catalyst is that it also required the oil industry to start producing much more unleaded gasoline and uh, federal and state regulations to phase out all leaded gasoline, uh, which is a program that was um, bitterly fought by the um, lead Industry, of course, uh, but also by um, many uh, many people in the auto industry who thought that you really needed lead to make the cars run more efficiently. Uh, it, uh, the The health impact of getting lead out of gasoline probably is more important by any standard than the impact of the other kinds of pollutants that we reduced. And that was really, an, it was a side effect. It was an ancillary effect of having required uh, the catalytic converter. So that was a huge breakthrough point um, in, the, in the 70s.
0: In California, you know, we often see the state kind of moving as a first mover in a lot of these things. So they're the, you know, first to say, you know what, we're going to put this stake in the sand when it comes to environmental uh, regulations. And we're going to keep moving forward. And then you see a lot of different states and then different countries picking up lessons learned from the state.
1: Yeah, so first of all, I do want to say something about California and why it – Why it occupies this sort of unique place as a, as a state that, um, is known for being a first mover. Um, I think our size and our diversity within the state have contributed to this. But the main thing that really has, has helped us in terms of the climate regulatory Field is the fact that we had the ability to set our own emission standards for motor vehicles. It was built into the 1970 original Clean Air Act, and California governors, both Republican and Democrat, and California senators, both Republican and Democrat, have fought over the years. And during my time as uh, as, as the head of the state air agency, I thought my number one Priority. The one thing that I absolutely have, had to do was to protect that ability at all costs, because that gave us the chance to uh, develop our own programs. And once we survived the litigation test of whether what we were doing was really technically feasible and necessary to clean up the air, which it always was, um, we were able to move on our own without waiting for the federal government to uh, allow us to do things. So we're a big state and we're uh, a prosperous state. We have a big economy um, and we have this special weapon that nobody else has. And I think that's probably been the main... Um, feature that allowed us to have that confidence over the years of having done the regulations, seen them work, that we could also, um, continue to innovate and make progress in the future.
0: I realized a moment ago, I'm like, we've been talking a lot about cars and personal mobility and all that, but California, I'm like, trucks, ports, like, we gotta talk about that stuff too. I love ports.
1: And I've spent a lot of my life working on trucks, too. It's a, We always gravitate to the passenger cars first because most people have them or more Absolutely. certainly more people Absolutely. do. And uh, so that's where the glamour is. But yeah, the, the emissions are uh, now, especially increasingly, the proportion that's coming from the goods movement, as we call it, is actually greater than from passenger vehicles.
0: Absolutely. And so can you talk a bit about... California's current challenges when it comes to like heavy trucks, ports, like the movement of goods. And then can you talk a little bit about what California has done? I know there was that rule in 2020 that, you know, did a lot around advancing clean trucks and the economy, but what California is doing to move those things to a net zero world. Well, when you talk about Goods movement, you're talking
1: about a system which inevitably um, goes beyond the state's boundaries. So we are uh, much more um, bound to um, other states and to the rest of the world when we start talking about planes, trains ships and trucks uh, that we were talking about, passenger cars. California could have its own fleet of, you know, small electric cars if we had chosen to go in that direction. Uh, but we're not going to be able to be participants in the global economy if we can't find ways to make everything cleaner, and we don't have the legal ability uh, or the political ability to do it all from California. We are a big enough state so we can make some demands, and and we have uh, with respect to trucks coming across our borders. But when you talk about ocean-going vessels at the port or um, planes landing at the airports, you're in a different realm. And so um, we've had to think about ways in which we could have influence uh, in those situations, even if we don't directly do the regulation. And there are some things that we've been able to do over the years. For example, the port of LA Long Beach, which is um, uh, responsible for about 40% of all goods that come in and out of uh, the United States. Um, That port has for years now been requiring that um, trucks that come to pick up uh, or, or deliver goods to the port have to meet cleaner air standards than they would have if they were just meeting federal emission standards. Um, the state was able to require that um Uh, the ports make available places where ships could plug in so so that they use shore power when they're uh, loading and offloading, loading and unloading, that they would actually have their onboard systems be uh, electric rather than burning bunker fuel, which is what they used to do. So, uh, you know, we evolved a system where, um, where the ships would need to uh, be using shore power. Um, and there are other regulations that involve what uh, the ships can do when they're within the state's waters. They have to burn cleaner fuel than they do when they 're at sea uh, because of the impact on shore from vehicles that are making their way along the coast of California um, and they have to switch fuels uh, when they're when they're in our ports so they 're using a cleaner fuel and you know these are all measures that the state has taken to uh, to reduce um, emissions, but they don't get you to zero or anywhere close to zero. And for that, we, we need new technologies. Now, we're seeing things evolve. Um, there's uh, uh, several companies now that have uh, figured out ways to do electric air transportation, small hops type um, uh, passenger or freight. And they'll start out, of course, until all the safety features are well understood. And and uh, there's a lot of confidence in the safety. Uh, you know, people are going to be reluctant to um, jump into a battery powered airplane, but they're already our battery powered airplanes that are making deliveries um between small airports uh you know in this in this country so uh, sometimes i think the changes are happening before we even um you know can get around to passing regulations to make them happen which is good there's an awareness out there that innovation is needed and people are investing in developing and testing and deploying the technology and then they come to the government and ask for regulation to make it uh more more uh, profitable or more more uh successful so i feel like the uh, the overall vision for how the economy is going to work in this world of no combustion um, is still very much a work in progress. I don't think we have one uh um, magic solution, but we do have people working on ways to try to make the whole system, at least for now, uh work in a more efficient way. And um recently the reimagining mobility group that I mentioned came out with a report that talked about the um emissions that could be saved and money that could be saved as a result of better use of information about where ships are going and when, just to manage the time that they're spending and to manage loads better. And um, I just heard the other day that the Federal Maritime Commission is actually looking at this proposal and thinks that they have the power to just do it. So, you know, something that's been a Uh, ongoing sort of inefficiency that was recognized fairly recently is now being potentially turned into a future regulation.
0: So coming back to this rule, I wanted to ask through kind of what you think, now that the rule is out there, what do you think the impact is going to be? And I'm thinking about your work with UN and other organizations about not just what's going to happen in California, but what's going to happen beyond California as a result of a rule like this. Well, what I think is
1: going to happen is that we're going to see a, a... a rapid increase in the normalization of electric vehicles across the spread of vehicles, uh, because, you know, much as we, Love Tesla, and I drive a Tesla myself. Um, I recognize that not everybody is going to be able to afford them, even with the incentives that are built into the latest federal energy legislation. Uh, and we're, uh, you know, we're going to have to uh, also make it much easier for people to move around in cities, and that may mean more electric buses, or electric uh, shuttles, or electric small connected vehicles or you know there's the whole transportation system really has to be rethought right now, so that 's the next horizon is um, you know we we hope we we can uh, get people to buy and and appreciate and enjoy electric vehicles and it looks like that's already taking off um, to the point where now you know an average consumer a person who um, needs a car and Maybe even enjoys driving. Um, doesn't feel like uh, looking at an electric car means a sacrifice or something that you're only doing for um, the good of the planet. That is, you know, uh, the word is out that electric cars are here. They're real. They actually are fun to drive. Um, they have certain advantages. In fact, when it comes to being clean uh, and maybe not having to go to a gas station because you can charge in your basement of your building or in your own. Uh, driveway if you if you have a driveway um, so the next horizon here is really looking at the total system of how people move around, including people who today don't drive any car at all, and uh, how we're going to get them. To have mobility, well, enable them to have mobility, uh, and do it in a way that doesn't, uh, that, that doesn't uh, contribute to warming the atmosphere. And this is a global issue. It's not obviously just a California or just a national issue, but it's, uh, we're just kind of at the tip of really, um, having some seriously interesting experiments going on in, uh, ways to deal with uh, how we get from place to place.
0: And that's our show. The Big Switch is produced by Columbia University's CEPA Center on Global Energy Policy in partnership with PostScript Media. This episode was produced by Daniel Waldorf and Alexandria Herr. Story editing by Anne Bailey. Mixing and scoring by Sean Marquand and Greg Vilfrank. Theme song by Sean Marquand. A special thanks to our Columbia team, Q Lee, Liz Smith, Jen Wu, Natalie Volk, and Elise Manos. Our managing producer is Cecily Meza-Martinez. Our executive editor is Stephen Lacey. I'm Dr. Melissa Lott, and this is The Big Switch.